everybody, and welcome back to Old Spooky Lane Creepy Chats. We're recovering creepy topics here on Creepy Chats, and we're continuing Tim Burton Month. I'm Patricia, and I'm here with Aaron Meta from The Aaron Meta Show. Hey. Edward Scissorhands is our next uh, adventure into the land of Tim Burton. And uh, yeah, it definitely does feel akin to like a proper um, streak that he's been having with uh, Beetlejuice and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But this came out uh, shortly after the release of Batman. And so, yeah, I I think with Batman, it was definitely when he was like really striking it into the mainstream because, you know, adapting a DC superhero that hasn't had a major adaptation since like the adam west uh, tv show and the fact that uh, it was much more of a darker take very similar to frank miller's batman so yeah this is when i think that hollywood was seeing that tim burton was definitely a major contender we said that before with beetlejuice but i think with batman this is when a lot of people started to have um, tim burton on their minds when creating more unique and more idiosyncratic films so yeah i mean it was definitely something like you would not expect expect at the time when you were to see a film in theaters yeah and uh, i think with that was his hands i think a lot of people still fondly remember this movie and uh from uh, a while back ago but released in 1990 so it's uh, it's had a lot of age on it since then but uh, i think a lot of people still go back to it from that time and again and say it's like you know it definitely is one of uh tim burton's more uh, you know one of his celebrated movies uh effectively and uh so um i mean back, back in the day it only made about uh, it was it took 20 million dollars to make and uh, made about 86 million dollars at the box office pretty worldwide and uh that was like respectable i think at that time uh, yes the, it, it was pretty respectable at that time absolutely especially since edward scissorhands was definitely not a major film that you would think oh yeah let's just have this you know major uh promotion for it because apparently from what i've heard in um in an article not you know like that was released around the same time as edward scissorhands was that 20th century fox didn't want to give it a major um you know promotional uh piece because he felt that it was just like not the type of film to have that major promotional release, which it, it I feels mean, very indie, kind of... doesn't it? Like this is like this feels like an indie film more than it does feel like you know a, a massive like you know major studio production, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, a lot of uh, Tim Burton's early films were essentially like that. I mean, you know, Pee Wee's Big Adventure was essentially like okay, it, it's more or less an indie film, but you know, just have a, a major eighties icon. And Beetlejuice, I would say, is uh, definitely akin to that, where you know, it's not based off like a pre-existing property is not based off of like a book or um something that's already existed before it was definitely its own original thing the closest thing at the time would have been batman where it was definitely a lot more in the mainstream at that point in time but yeah edward scissorhands again we're definitely leaning more towards that originality that uh feel of an indie movie just released by a major studio Oh, by the way, this is very. This uh, story is also very personal to Tim Burton because uh, this is uh, conceived. Uh, it was his was conceived uh, from his childhood upbringing in his, his suburban Burbank, California. If you listen to a lot of um, documentaries or um, if you listen to a lot of um, commentary, you can definitely tell that Tim Burton was definitely like the odd one amongst everybody else around him. Like, you know, his parents didn't exactly understand his um, expressionism and he was like deemed as like the weird one towards his peers. So, yeah, I can definitely see like around that time period where, you know, when he 
was growing up in California, he was definitely like, um, uh, you know, somebody who just didn't really fit in towards like what you would expect to see from a cookie cutter teenager. So uh, I'm pretty sure it would be when your dad is Vincent Price. That's a joke, by the way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, it's actually funny about Vincent Price, because if you remember, Vin, uh, this wasn't the first time that Tim Burton had worked with Vincent Price. As you know, um, he was brought in for his short film, Vincent, and then he really enjoyed his work. And so he brought him in for one of his last roles in Edward Scissorhands. And there's no introduction for who Vincent Price is. He is essentially like the king of horror movies he's been in so many horror films throughout his career and he's just has this very charismatic personality that just shines in with every performance that he's been in you may know him for his narration on michael jackson's thriller you may know him as radigan from the great mouse detective i mean he's been in so many things and uh, by the way there is a misconception to edward scissorhands when it comes to vincent price because a lot of people keep saying uh, i've noticed this when uh, i go through some youtube videos that they said that this was vincent price's last performance wrong uh he was in dennis hopper's catch fire in 1990 and also if you really want to go technical with it he was the last movie that he was in was 1995's the thief and the cobbler you know why yeah yeah but the so, thief I and mean, the cobbler it, has been in like developmental hell for you know several decades i mean that was in production since all the way back in the 60s but you know the persistence of vision is a great documentary that you should check out if you really want to know more information about thief and the cobbler but yeah i would say that for like edward uh for um vincent price's final performance i guess it's a subject of debate because you know productions and depending on when the film is going to be released so yeah i i guess um i can see why some people would say that this was his last film even though technically it wasn't but anyway besides all that but yeah he he's only appear he only appears in the film for a little bit where he's essentially edward's creation but you know he never got to finish him and after a while when he passed away edward was living in this home pretty much all by himself until uh peg discovers him once yeah, again, we have uh, Vincent Price basically is a mad inventor, effectively. Like you can see how crazy everything is around him. Like you know, he's like uh, he's like Willy Wonka if he never really had a filter. You know, exactly. Like, yeah, he's a combination of Frankenstein meets with Willy Wonka. You know, just like absolutely mad with his creations. I mean, just the entire. I can uh, take you in a world of imagination. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god. Anyway, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, seeing this huge laboratory that the science, the, the inventor is in, and then just seeing him interacting with Edward is very sweet, I will admit. It's just a shame that he isn't in the movie as much, which I guess it makes a lot of sense because Vincent Price at that point in time was already approaching age. And so... Um, but at, well, at I don't same... think there's anything to do with that. I think it was more the fact that, you know, he, even though he was like uh, the idea of like Edward Sinishan is like uh, he is just kind of this anomaly of mystery. Like, you know, where did he come from? Like, uh, why was he in this, you know, house? Well, what happened to him? And it's kind of shown through like flashbacks that he has while he's sleeping, like, you know, uh, re 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 reflecting on like his um, memories of his father and his uh, memories of like what he was like when he was like in the factory, when he was like uh, being constructed if you will and uh, 
you know, you see that, you know, the life just fades away out of, uh, you know, uh, Vincent Price and he just falls to the ground and uh, he never got uh, the ability to, like, teach, um, you know, Edward the ability to, you know, interact normally with other people. He, you know, the, the idea of Edward Scissorhands is that he is just like a blank slate, effectively. Like, he only has, like, some basic concepts of, like, you know, interaction. And even that, even that's pretty fickle. Uh, in a way, and so, um, I mean, we might just get into the story, really, of Edward. Yeah, yeah, let's get into point. the yeah. story. Yeah, right. So, uh, one evening, an elderly woman tells her granddaughter a bedtime story of a young man named Edward Scissorhands. Many years later, Peg Bog, who is a local daughter-to-law Avon saleswoman, tries to sell the um, decrepit Gothic mansion where he Edward lives. The creation of an old inventor, Edward, is an ageless humanoid. Uh, the inventor homeschooled Edward, but died of a heart attack before giving Edward's hands, leaving him unfinished. Peg finds Edward alone and offers to take him into her home after discovering he is virtually harmless. Uh, Peg introduces Edward to her husband, Bill, their young son, Kevin, and their teenage daughter, Kim. Edward falls in love with Kim, despite uh, her initial fear of him. Uh, as the neighbours are curious about uh, the new house guest, the Boggs throw a neighbourhood barbecue welcoming him. Uh, most of the neighbours are fascinated by Edward and befriend him, except for the eccentric religious fanatic Esmeralda and Kim's super-religious boyfriend, Jim. So, that's basically our setup. So, you know, in a way, this kind of sets up like you know uh, you would think this would be like a generic setup for like a horror movie wouldn't you like you know this yeah, is like it, it uh, feels akin to like frankenstein you know where you know you have dr frankenstein who creates a monster the monster is a blank slate but then after a while when he's being constantly abused by you know frankenstein's assistant fritz and then when he wanders around and um, he's just basically like really confused about the world around him. He doesn't necessarily have a clue on it because he was literally just stitched together in body parts. And, you know, the only thing he's ever gotten was just fear and abuse and trying to um, comprehend on what is this creature that has just come into this world. And Edward is kind of equivalent to a Frankenstein like monster in which he's a blank slate the only, you know, person he's ever interacted with is the person who created him. And then when the creator dies, he's just left absolutely alone and isolated. And then finally, somebody comes into the picture and interacts with him and finally brings him out into the world. And he's just trying to comprehend it. But at the same time, there's just a lovableness. Uh, there, there, he's just very lovable to everybody and uses his scissor hands in very unique ways. And everybody seems to really enjoy his company and are just fascinated with his um eccentricities but then there's always one person who's just absolutely you know fearful of him and thinks that he's just an abomination and he needs to go away because he doesn't fit into the cookie cutter society well, when you really look at it, like every single character is like a, you know, has an effect on our protagonist in all of this. Like, you know, you have Peg who takes sympathy on Edward's hands and tries, you know, to, and she's re really you know, sentimental towards him because uh, she realizes, you know, that there's more to him than, you know, just a monster. Like, you know, this is someone who is, you know, just completely isolated from the world and doesn't know how to interact with it. So she takes him in and uh, which, you know, there are people out there, you know, uh, that will do that for people. 
And so Peggy is like a, a, a representative of that type of person. Whereas, you know, you, the other people like there is the religious fanatic Esmeralda, who, you know, is the opposite. She, she completely wants to isolate uh, Edward because she, you know, wrongly believes that, you know, this person is like some kind of evil monster who's going to, you know, wreak havoc at some point and uh, he's trying to turn, you know, the entire neighborhood against uh, Edward. And then you have Jim, who is uh, coming in from like from a different angle because he's jealous, obviously, because um, you know he has the you know, the uh, the attention of you know of of the, of the teenage girl in this. And I'm trying to find the name. I do apologize. Um, who? What was her name? Uh, the teenage girl. The teenage girl. Yeah. Um, in love with you. Oh, Kim, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, Kim. Uh, yeah. So Kim, um, you know, is uh, it's, it's taking an interest, even though at the first she, you know, is disgusted by Edward, but then later on starts to grow to like him as she starts to know him. Uh, but then obviously Jim is uh, not happy with that, and so obviously gets envious, and that's the reason why he wants to destroy Edward's his hand because he's going it from from that angle, right? If you right. So. So you got Jim who's coming from an a, a angle of envy, and you got Esmeralda who's coming from an angle of you know, if anything, ignorance, if you will. Yeah, ignorance. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then you see like other people who like uh, get, have their own interactions with uh, with Edward because uh, you know you have one character who tries to seduce him. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much on to, on two occasions and yes. almost gets away with one of them in the in the salon so uh there is um uh that there's that interaction and then you have other people who like you know want to uh there's another character who like will you know basically stir up like you know talk over the cat over the character not really like uh, just not you know because obviously she's like the bored housewife and just wants to basically stir up you know um you know all the other characters you know in uh, like you know just in just in gossip if you will, so right. like you know, chatting on the phone and things like that. So, like, if you notice, like, you know, when you watch this movie, every single character has a different interaction with Edward, right? And uh, I think that I think that's very interesting. If anything, you can look at this and say this is the idea of basic, you know, uh, char characters. And, and again, you know, there's loads of animes out there, like you know, you have like the, you know the stereotypical like you know three girls, which is like you know the the happy one, the angry one, and like you know the the uh, the, the the clueless one. If oh yeah, yeah. Uh, just think, like you would in every single typical anime in which you have like the psychotic one, you have the very sweet and shy one, you have um the hyperactive one, you have the clueless one. Uh yeah, I mean you have essentially like a checklist of everything that you would see in an anime. Yeah, I think this uh, this is this is better example of like you know different characters having different interactions with our our protagonist and uh, I think this gives uh, if anything I think people can learn from from this movie I yeah think, it's definitely that. a really interesting character piece you you definitely learn about you know the main character is a blank slate and he's trying to learn everything around him by just his eccentricities he's able to be an impact for better and for worse for everybody that he meets around with i think that this is a great character piece because you know, characters is something that we really gravitate whenever that we see a movie. Sure, a lot of people may think it's the story. Sure, some people may think it's um, the special effects or something like that. But no, I mean, if a character works, then the entire story would work. But if the characters don't work, then you're not going to be fully invested in it. Yeah. Uh, also, this uh, movie is actually kind of refreshing because um, it's not like uh, you know you got Edward Scissorhands. Let's be honest, he looks like a murderous psychopath. He does, yes, he, he does. Like I mean, today you probably look every like like every typical goth except without the you know scissor fingers. But uh, I mean, like uh, um, you know, back in the nineteen nineties, he would basically be an outcast. He would be isolated pretty much and uh, so there's that but you know, everyone funny enough, you know, where uh, everyone like just gives him like a fair shake and just like everyone takes him in. 
pretty much. Yeah, like, yeah. You would think that they let him cut his movie very similar to like Frankenstein, that people will be fearful of him. They'll just like stay away from him. He's dangerous. And then like maybe towards like the second or third act, they'll be like, oh, but he's not such a bad guy. But no, they actually give him a a fair chance like right early on, which is actually uh, pretty refreshing. Yeah, so they're going as far as like you know they'll let them trim their hedges, they'll let them trim their dogs, they'll let them trim their own hair, things like that. Like you know anything that basically needs trimming, you know. Uh, they'll, or, they'll and let and them then there's do. also the ice sculptures. Oh, the ice sculptures too. Like uh, there's that too. And uh, you know then it only kind of like comes to a problem when you know they have to basically deal with like the reality because Edward can't basically just live on like good intentions effectively. So like uh, that you know he needs to basically have his own life effectively, and that's what they try to do. But uh, they go to the bank to try and. Like, get him to like, start his own business, but he has no social security. He has no history. He has no job. He's had no car. He's virtually had nothing that would allow him to get a loan to start his business. So, they, you know, that's out the window. So, um, and this is the interesting, this is where like the um, misconstrues go. And by the way, this, dare I say, this is probably a better way of like doing the misunderstanding of them in the in halfway through the movie. Cause like, you, you know, you have like, the typical movie where like, you know, you have the protagonist and then you have like all the characters and then you have like, the big misunderstanding. They all go their separate ways. They realize how dumb they've been and then they come up for the finale. You know, like yeah. we've seen loads of movies like that, loads of Disney movies, loads of DreamWorks movies, loads of like, you know, all the movies that we kind of watch kind of do that thing. Dare I say this does it more in an interesting way than I yeah, think uh, this movie does? Because like, uh, you know, um, Edward basically joins a gang of, joins the gang of Zena, joins Kim, Jim and everybody else because uh, he's been tricked into thinking that uh, they're going to, you know, uh, steal some stuff back, which was stolen from them. And he has no idea like how society works. Of course, he goes along with it. So then he ends up getting in trouble for it. And uh, but then, you know, um he realizes that, uh, you know, he it was Jim's house, but he wasn't going to say anything because it was going to impress Kim, effectively, because, you know, she, she he's in love with him. But um, the um, Peg and, uh, and his husband come in and uh, they think that uh, the reason why he robbed the house is because, oh, he's trying to get the money to start the business. But uh, they, you know, they use the defense of like, oh, well, of course he's going to do that because he has no idea of like how society is actually supposed to work between right and wrong. Exactly. Exactly. And things like that. And uh, even the police agree. And like, oh, wow. Like, uh, which is kind of refreshing when you think about it. Unlike today, but, you know, I digress. But, um, you know, because the, you know, the, the psychologist comes in and says, oh, well, you know, he's had no idea of like how society should really work because he was isolated for so long. So the police actually take sympathy over him. And it's like, OK, well, don't do it again, effectively. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think that that's great because ordinarily, you know, you when you when you have the police show up, it's like, okay, here we go. He's gonna get arrested. We're gonna see Edward in jail, and he's gonna be like sitting down and not understanding what's gonna happen. And then everybody's gonna think he's a menace. And then finally, maybe like towards the end, then we find out that it was a misunderstanding. But no, it actually just cuts to it right away, saying, no, this guy has been in a mansion pretty much for a long time not understanding on how life works and the fact that the police know about it and everybody else know about it even the psychologist knows about it saying yeah this guy we need to help him out as opposed to like no we need to stay away from him because he's clearly trouble i told you from the moment that i looked at him with this weird um you know scissor hands and his in his uh his posture i i knew he was going to be trouble but no, they don't do this. They don't do this at all. Yeah, exactly. I, I, in a way, I don't really like the finale of this movie. I don't either. No, it's just like, it kind of like gives like the idea, oh, well, you know, if you have a suspicious, if you have like, you know, a, a jealous boyfriend who like, you know, tries to ruin your life, kill him. 
You know, yeah. it's just like it's not a not a great message to kind of leave away with this movie. But uh, I guess maybe it is a like a message like saying, "Well, this is like society can be unfair sometimes." I'm guessing. I but, guess uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, Frankenstein movies in which you know a lot of characters die. You know, whether it be the villain and then the monster dies, or that the villain dies, or the monster dies. So. I guess they're trying to say, you know, get rid of the thing that is bad and then you have the ending. So, yeah, I mean, it just It would have been better if, like, I think Back to the Future did it best, I think, in regards to, like, you know, when Biff, you know, obviously got his comeuppance in the yes. end, you know, after doing all the things that he did. Like, his comeuppance, I think, is better. I mean, they should have kind of done it the way Back to the Future did. Yeah, and Back to the Future, Biff was the bully in the 50s. And throughout the course of the 80s, you know, he was constantly bullying towards uh, Mr. McFly. But then when Marty went back in time and gained, uh, helped gain his dad the confidence to stand up against Biff, he was able to retroactively change the future where now Biff is helping, you know, Mr. McFly and the family. So, yeah, I, I guess... Um, you know, where um, he was able to get the confidence to stand up to him. And then finally, he was able to kind of like um, chill him down. Whereas, oh, no, uh, you know, this guy is bad. How are we going to be able to deal with it? Are we going to sit down and talk to him? No, we're just going to kill him. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just, it's, uh, I think it's a bad way to kind of end the movie. In my opinion, it should have just been like, you know, oh, Jim gets his comeuppance. And then, like, uh, Edward realizes that, you know, he's done, like, his his work is done, basically, in the neighborhood. He goes off into, like, you know, um, maybe he goes off into the mansion, like, you know, does all this stuff. And, like, they all just kind of reach and leave each other alone. Or he could have been like, you know, he decides to leave the mansion, go elsewhere. Like, you know, because uh, there's more to the world than just this neighborhood and this, and this, uh, this mall, like, you know, he probably go off elsewhere and, like, you know, find his calling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it could have been a case in which when maybe Edward just felt unsatisfied because there were still going to be people out there in the neighborhood that were going to hate him and misunderstand him. And then he's like, you know what? You know, there's a whole world out there. I can explore it. I can find somebody who um, is going to be more caring towards me than the people in this neighborhood. I mean, I could travel around and maybe I can get um, a clear understanding of what the world is like. But no, we, we don't exactly get that. Yeah. Um. So in regards to the presentation of this movie, the way that things are like, uh, you know, well, doesn't this movie kind of feel like this should be like taking place in like, you know, not like mid- medieval times, but, you know, like the old times, if you will. Like, you know, there should be like a bunch of villages, like in these old houses, like, kind of like, you know, trying to get by, if you will. And here comes Edward Scissorhands, kind of like help things out. But uh, I mean, no, they decided to, be, they decided to put this in the 70s, which is. Yeah, they decided to put it in the 1970s. Yeah, I think so, because. I mean, throughout the beginning of the movie, we have the old woman telling the bedtime story to her granddaughter. I and mean, it makes it look like that it's either in the 60s or the 70s, which I guess kind of makes sense because, you know, it was the radical age in which there was a lot of change that was happening and it was shaking up from what the 40s and the 50s was able to bring past World War II, where things were a lot more peaceful yet uh, conservative. So I guess that's a really interesting take on it because... Um, it, it, because, uh, you know, it would have fit within the message and the moral of what this story was trying to be in the, fir- in the you know, two thirds of the movie right before the ending just kind of killed it. Hmm. So, but uh, I think the, um, the, the, the whole presentation of the movie, I think is, uh, you know, very, you know, like it is, it is quite strange. Like it's like one world ends and one world begins. 
if you yeah. will. like you know he's like it's like it's like two worlds kind of colliding one another and uh, it's two eras if you will because like uh, you know obviously the era of like you know the the inventor obviously was you know several decades before you know and it looks like uh, you know Edward Scissorhands is you know has basically you know uh lasted the te- the te- lasted the test of time effectively even though he's been living in squalor pretty much yeah exactly yeah he's ageless he he doesn't age at all he's you know going to be forever staying that way because he was created at that sense Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I actually really like this because you're right. A story like this would have taken place like hundreds of years ago, like we see in Frankenstein and when we see with the mummy and Dracula in which it does take place like maybe towards like the 17th or 18th century. Like it, it does feel like it's fits with that, but it takes a more contemporary twist in which, okay, what would happen if Frankenstein was in our time period? Or what would happen if, you know, Dracula or um, what would happen if the mummy or the wolfman was in our time period? And he's just trying to comprehend modern society. I, I think that's interesting, um, you know, because, you know, nowadays when we see uh, more contemporary takes on horror films, they're either one of two camps. They either take place in modern times or they take place in the past. And, you know, in recent years when we gotten like remakes and reboots of classic stories like Dracula, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, so on and so forth, they they take place in their respective time periods that they were released in, like um, like around, um, you know, when Mary Shelley wrote the book around the 1800s, it takes place in the 1800s. And um, when King Kong was released in 1933, Peter Jackson did the adaptation taking place in the 1930s and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, the Shape of Water uh, by Guillermo del Toro, which is basically like a newer take on um, Creature from the Black Lagoon, takes place around the 1950s and 60s during a time in which um, it was like a an interesting take on like accepting those who are different from you, which makes a lot of sense in the context of it. But yeah, you don't really see a lot of, you know, horror movies or, um, you know, classic monsters being in our world. When you see modern takes on horror movies, they're like slashers or um you know, like, um, you know, genuine horror films. Uh, but yeah, I would say that this is definitely like a very unique take on having a Frankenstein-like monster in the 21st century. Yeah. So um, one thing that's I find is basically the, it is interesting that, um, you know, you have, um, you know, the whole setup of like, the, you know, the suburban neighborhood, like in the 70s, like, you know, the dads all go off, you know, in their cars off to work or to play golf or whatever. And, you know, uh, the uh, the house you know the, the women stay at home and uh, you know uh, I think there's only two things that I survived from that from that uh, era of things and that is there's still women going around selling Avon products and uh, they're still bored housewives at home having sex with plumbers. <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah the, the last time that avon was relevant in my life was over 15 years ago where i actually knew someone who went around door-to-door selling avon products so, well, but that's still happening you know yeah. like you know they still yeah avon, avon's still like you know getting people to like you know go around and have, you know we're selling their products to like you know you know uh, friends and stuff yeah yeah it's just not as much as it used to be but it's still around yeah yeah, and um, I- I'm sure that there's the whole uh, board, you know, housewives having sex with plumbers. And- oh, yeah, that's still going on. Yeah, that's still going on. <laughs> yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. This is a very pivotal movie for Tim Burton, uh, not only because, you know, it went back to his 
um, you know, gothic indie roots, but also this is the first appearance of Johnny Depp as like his main character. Because if you remember before, he would have Michael Keaton for perform as both Beetlejuice and Batman. So yeah, this will be the first out of many appearances of Johnny Depp in his uh in his movies. Yeah. So I mean, like, well, this kind of set things off really. So for, for Johnny it, Depp, it did, for... yeah, because uh, Tim Burton saw Johnny Depp in Twenty One J- Jump Street, the TV series, and he was very impressed with his performance, and so he decided to bring him in. And yeah, um, from what I read, Edward Scissorhands' performance was based off of Johnny Depp watching a lot of Charlie Chaplin silent films and trying to get the blank expression from when he would perform in his short films. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely does show Johnny Depp's versatility because. You know, around before 21 Jump Street, he was also in Nightmare on Elm Street and various other um, short roles in other films. So this was kind of like one of the major films that really brought in and out until eventually we would know him for like other major roles like Jack Sparrow and Pirates of the Caribbean and various other things. So, yeah, by the way, this this was a Winona writers like, you know, were probably second movie within the 90s before like basically just became like a massive deal. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we saw Renona Ryder before, you know, she was Lydian Beetlejuice. But yeah, this was around the time in which she was really starting to get more popular towards a lot more movie roles. Uh, you know, she also did, um, you know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. She was in Martin Scorsese, The Age of Innocence. She was in Little Women. And then after a while, I think like uh, Girl Interrupted was where, you know, she really started becoming a lot more mainstream towards uh, uh, cinema. Uh, and by the way, uh, she's actually going to be doing uh, the next Beetlejuice movie. That's right. Uh, yeah, she is. She's going to be reprising her role as Lydia, which is going to be great. Yeah. And once again, uh, Danny Elfman is back to doing the music. And uh, yeah, I would say that he definitely captures the whimsicalness of like suburban life while at the same time, the creepy and eeriness of when we get over to the mansion and when we get to see Edward. So yeah, uh, Danny Elfman captures, you know, the soundtrack once again, really, really well. Yeah. And um, um yeah, I, I would really. say that um yeah, everybody does a really great job with um you know their performances. I, I really do believe that they are these characters, and I really do enjoy the fact that we're able to see their complexities and their simplicities whenever that they appear on the screen. So yeah, I would say that, like I said, I mean, as a character piece, it's a great movie, and I would recommend that you check it out. Just don't expect a great ending. That's probably the weakest thing about this movie. Yeah. By the way, and one thing uh, I think, in a way, like this movie was somewhat unlucky because this got nominated for like several awards, but unfortunately uh, didn't get a chance to. Win. I mean, it only really won uh, uh, a BAFTA award, and uh, you know, it, it got a couple of nominations for like other stuff, but unfortunately, like uh, you know, nothing really major, really for that. But uh, I mean, it definitely has recognition in nominations, but not unfortunately, it doesn't really come back with many wins. Yeah, that's a shame too because. It definitely did deserve to get at least maybe some wins, at least for makeup and at least for costumes. But no, not necessarily. I think for makeup, Dick Tracy won of all things. Yeah, like uh, I don't know if people talk about Dick Tracy anymore, really. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that. Yeah. 
And yeah, I, I mean, it, it's not, yeah, I, I mean, I would say that um, awards don't necessarily make a great film. I mean, yeah, we don't talk about Dick Tracy anymore, but people still talk about Edward Scissorhands. So even though it didn't win a lot of awards, it still got the, um, you know, the win in the end in which people still regard it as like one of Tim Burton's best films. Mm-hmm. All right, so that uh, wraps up our discussion of Edward Scissorhands. So uh, tune in next time as we continue with uh, our Tim Burton month with another one of Tim Burton's best films that is still beloved for both Halloween and Christmas. We're going to be talking about The Nightmare Before Christmas. Cool. Oh, sorry. I thought, I thought that was going to be the end. <laughs> uh, if you want to say your goodbyes, you can. Okay, okay. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> okay. Bye. Uh, bye. <laughs> Thank you.